Welcome to Philosophy and Faith, where our goal is to help you navigate your intellectual and spiritual journey, especially in regards to topics like God, faith and doubt, meaning and purpose, and more. I'm Nathan Beasley. And I'm Daniel Jepson. And together we discuss the big questions that humans have wrestled with for thousands of years. We're glad you can join us. Well, let's go on to Eastern thought. We'll spend less time here. Can I actually transition us to paganism? Sure. Okay. So we've been talking a little bit about kind of this difference between monotheism and secularism or naturalism, materialism. So monotheists would ground their ethics in the character or nature or personhood of God. So wondering about the polytheistic perspective, do they ground their ethics also in the nature character of the gods? Or what does that look like? How do polytheists understand the question of ethics? Yeah, for the most part, they do not ground it in the nature of God. And I think we're mo probably most familiar with the Greek myths, but I think the other myth systems or polytheistic systems I've seen kind of align with this. So when you think about the Greek myths of the many gods, right? Mm -hmm. Is Zeus a moral character? I don't know. <laughs> Well, he's the highest, most important God, the chief God of the Olympic pantheon. And yet he is consistently acting immorally. He cheats on his wife in so many stories. <laughs> he deceives and he is deceived. He displays favoritism towards others for no reason other than that they do certain things for him. So he is not a God that humans are encouraged to emulate in their morality. Okay. But instead, polytheistic morality usually works like this, that these gods exist within the universe and they have powers to influence our lives for good or for bad. And so what morality consists of, religiously at least, is that you want to do the things that either please those gods or at least keep them from blasting you. And that involves offering them sacrifices. It involves offering the right kind of worship and participating in certain religious or cultural festivals. And very often it also includes things like not choosing adultery or choosing lying. One of the main things, at least in Greek thought, is not to go beyond the bounds or the limits set for, for yourself, especially in terms of your relationship as a human toward the gods. Hubris is the word that's usually describing this. The gods really get pissed off when a man has hubris, who thinks he's too big for his human britches, as it were. Hmm. Right? That really gets you in trouble. So it's almost a pragmatic morality for the most part. And again, we're painting in very broad brushes, but the idea of pragmatism and morality being that the gods have influence over my affairs. And when I do certain things, it achieves certain results from their part that they bless me or help me or don't blast me, at least. And so when I do certain things, they do certain things. It's a transactional approach to moral questions, at least in the religious sphere. Now, again, they also have their own cultures. They're going to define things are right and wrong. But philosophically and religiously, that seems to be how it works for the most part. Gotcha. I like that phrase. Uh, hope that the gods bless you, bless you, or at least don't blast you. Yeah. It's good. So would you say that within that worldview, there is objective morality? 
I think most people would say that there is. I'm not sure if you'd be able to get to a rationale for that, though. I don't know how you would. I guess it would depend upon the particular polytheistic religion or paganistic culture that you were in. But, for example, if you were a Greek, you certainly wouldn't get the standard of morality from Zeus. He does things that are wrong. But what is the principle outside himself that makes things right or wrong? I'm not sure I've ever seen that in Caress. Hmm. So I'm not sure. Yeah, that's one of the challenges of this whole thing is that there is so much variance within each of these worldviews. You use the word pragmatists because they're trying to appease the gods. That's not how monotheism is. Yeah, I was wondering if you're going to push back on that. Yeah. One of the things you have to keep in mind as we talk about any of these is that there is a way it's supposed to work and there's a way that it usually does work that none of us are consistent. And that's certainly the case in, in all these ethical systems, right? So we can be inconsistent with good or bad principles. And I think we have to be honest and say, sadly, that many people in monotheistic religions do function that way in their relationship with God, that they feel like if they do certain things for God, God will bless them and save them and help them. And I get that. It's hard to escape in our human condition. But when you go deeper and when you look at the better teachers within those traditions, you find that that's not the case. They've moved beyond that transactional relationship with God and that they come to the place where they honestly desire to please this God apart from what he does for them. That's the goal. Do we all get there? No, but it's a different goal. I feel like breaking out of that transactional system is hard just because we live our lives a lot by that principle, at least in society, you know, yeah. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, or I won't hurt you if you don't hurt me. And then of, of course, economically, we're in a very transactional system. So, but we can see, yes. I mean, the relational analogy, that's not how it's really supposed to be or not within the best interest in a marriage or in a parent child context. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that out. In most of our interactions with people, we live to some degree transactionally, right? So it's hard to get away from that. But we have an understanding that at least in some relationships, it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. And I think that points us at the heart of the deepest relationship between the creator and us, the one whom he created. And in Christianity, at least, I'll, I'll just narrow this down. What you see in the New Testament, what you see in the gospel, is God does not treat us transactionally, but has offered us grace. Grace is something that goes beyond karma. It goes beyond transaction. It is God's free determination to treat us not on the basis of what we deserve or what we have done, but simply out of love and towards what we and the goal of that is that we then become the kind of people who do that with each other as well and towards God, that we respond to him freely. You know, he doesn't have a need, so that, that part is different. But that same freedom of a husband and wife who know that they don't have to perform, they don't have to do it anything right, they don't have to meet expectations, they can just be loved and loved. Those kind of relationships, I think, point towards the deepest part of the gospel. Yeah, and I wonder if there's something in people that wants that freedom as well in other contexts as well. So, for example, when you think about the legal structure of the United States, 
the goal isn't that people don't break the law just because if they break the law, they'll get punished. Mm -hmm. Like the goal is for there to be a system in which people can act freely, but use their freedom to make good choices that don't hurt themselves or others. Right. So there's a desire to move beyond just the transaction of if I do this, then something happens back to me, right. either good or bad. And same thing economically. I mean, this is getting into the different branch in value theory uh, a little bit. So maybe you can reel me in. But there are a lot of people who don't like the transactional system of capitalism and they want a system that is more fair in which people are able to not only have based on what they produce, but to where everybody has, or even socialism, or even... Communism. Yeah. You can I, say it. Couldn't remember it. <laughs> say Marxism. Okay. But I, I don't know. Do you think that there's something there too, that there is maybe a desire to move beyond just transaction because we're relational beings innately? Yeah, I think so. And I'm glad you brought that out. I think socialism and even communism have a part of what we're longing for and a part that's beautiful. The idea that we will take care of you, not based on what you produce, but simply because you're part of the community. Hmm. The problem is, from my perspective at least, because Marx was an atheist, he did not have an understanding of human sin and fallenness that would distort the progress towards that goal. And without that understanding, he underestimated both the willingness of people in their present state, unredeemed state, as I would call it, to work for the common good, even at cost to themselves, and he underestimated the degree to which the leaders of the state would use power for their own selfish and sometimes evil ends. Gotcha, gotcha. So you're saying that the goals are that maybe arise naturally from people who are made in the image of God but they didn't understand enough or underestimated certain elements of human nature that could help us reach that utopia here on earth. Right. I mean, we're digressing, but as long as we're digressing, let's make it a full digression. <laughs> I think the vision that Karl Marx had for communism was not a bad picture of where humanity should go in God's eyes. In the sense that it was not competitive, it was something that took care of all members, regardless of what they produced or did. That part of it, I think, is very close to the gospel and the ultimate goal of God's kingdom. However, when you reject the idea of God and therefore of sin in the sense of a fallenness, a fallenness that we all have inherited because of, of human rebellion towards God, you have to explain human evil that you have to explain what's held people back from getting to that wonderful state for all this time. And for him, because he rejected religious categories of this, he came to the conclusion that they were economic things, that they were economic conditions and policies and systems that created the evil in humanity and that had to be overcome. So for him, if you change the economic system, you would get there because it wasn't that there was, a, that there was an inward flaw, an inward sin that we needed to be changed from and, and transformed from. It was if you removed all these economic problems and barriers and systems that are so oppressive, you would get there very naturally. And I think we've seen how well that worked out. I mean, there have been no greater evil systematically in the 20th century and into the 21st than communist governments. 
All right. So that's quite a digression. Yeah. So let's get back here. (laughs) We haven't quite talked about Eastern thought yet. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit on ethics from the Eastern perspective. Yeah, I'll try. Okay. Obviously, I'm not an expert, and I'm looking at this mainly in terms of the general philosophy that undergirds each of these. And when you come to humanity and ethics, what you find is quite a different understanding of what's right or wrong and what brings human goodness. For those in Hindu thought, and from what I understand, also in Buddhism, so the two most predominant religions or worldviews of the East, one of the key ideas is karma. Karma just means action. That's what the word means. But it's enmeshed in this whole cycle of samsara, in which the Atman, this living force of which you are now one representation, that part of you, which we would call in the West a soul, is transmigrated or reincarnated into a different animal form of some kind, or a different human form, humans having the body of an animal. So within this, Your goal is to get out of this this wheel, this circle where you're reincarnated, this cycle where this happens again and again and again. And the way that this happens is that you become more enlightened as you rise through these different permutations. This means as you rise higher in this almost circular staircase until you reach full enlightenment. And that enlightenment includes the idea that all is one. There is no duality of any kind. And that includes the duality of good and evil or right and evil. Ultimately, you transcend that. Those things are part of the false reality of this world, the maya, the illusion, trick, that we have to transcend in our understanding. That's really interesting. Right. It's almost asking the wrong question if something is right or wrong because people can progress enough to actually move beyond that. Yes. And ultimately, they all will. That's so fascinating. So again, at its heart, the philosophy underneath Hinduism, and therefore most of of Eastern thought, not all, the philosophy is this monism that all is one. So all distinctions between good and evil, right and wrong, belief and or knowledge and ignorance, male and female, these are all going to be transcended. They are not ultimately real. Gotcha. And the way to rise to that is through enlightenment. Yeah. And the way that you get enlightenment is going to vary a little bit. So the Hindus are going to give a different path. Early Hindus are going to give a different path. Some of the later branches. Buddhism is going to give a different path. But from what I understand on the overall philosophy of what the world is and where your goal is, they're pretty much agreed. You're talking about the monotheistic perspective that there is an objective goal, which is to escape Maya and to become one. However, the path to that may look different, but they're still trying to reach that objective. Right. Okay. And that perhaps shows a problem area or potential contradiction or potential area of lack of internal coherence. There's no duality. There's no right or wrong. There's no ultimate preference for one thing over another. They all blend into one. But at the same time, there also seems to be a consistent idea that to be enlightened is better than to be unenlightened. Yeah. I'm not sure if there's a way to work out that paradox, 
saying that one thing is better than the other, but also saying at the same time that there are no dualities, better and worse. I'm not smart enough to work that out. Maybe other people have figured that out. But, for, but from my perspective, that's a, a mark against the internal coherence of that world. Gotcha. And I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah. So for clarification, as we talk about enlightenment, are you talking about like the enlightenment thinkers that we're getting from like David Hume and John Locke and Thomas Hobbes, those guys? Yeah, good question. No, it's different. Okay. For the Western enlightenment, the main idea was that by rejecting dependence upon God and religion as the basis for formulating intellectual ideas and philosophies, that you would now be free to have light. <laughs> you would now be free to have truth that's not bound. That's very different than this thought. This type of enlightenment is an inward journey that a person makes towards understanding in the fullest sense that everything is of a loop. Gotcha. Let's come back to, finally, monotheism again. Monotheism teaches that the ultimate reality is personal. That gives not only a basis for human uniqueness and value if we are made in like, in like ways, but also for a rational morality that is here, whether humans are here or not. And it's consistent with this, then, to say that there are certain things that are always right and wrong. And there are certain values that are always good. There are certain things that are always bad. It's consistent with the metaphysics of that system to make those claims. I'm saying, from my viewpoint, naturalism at least is inconsistent when it makes those same claims based upon its metaphysics. I believe it's a mark against naturalism and a very profound mark against naturalism an inconsistency or incoherence within their own system, that the parts don't cohere or fit together. That's my thesis, and that's kind of what I'm trying to develop. So the internal consistency thing is one piece, but are all of these ethics equally livable? That's a very good question. If you believe there are no absolute standards of right or wrong, and again, not everyone would put it in those words, but if that's where your view viewpoint lives to, that to me is not a livable belief. Say more. <laughs> if you go up, and I've heard people who have done this, I've heard of a man who was talking with a Hindu, and this was a Hindu who was advanced in his philosophy, and this Hindu was saying that ultimately there is no right and wrong, that those are concepts of this world that are false dichotomies, and that ultimate reality is not right or wrong. Ultimately, those things, those concepts do not exist. And the person who he was talking to got incredibly upset with this idea. And he, he got a pan of a water that had been boiling off the stove. And he came over here to the, to the Hindu and said, if there is no right or wrong, then are you telling me I am not wrong to pour this on your lap? Oof. Yeah. And of course, at that point, for self-preservation, if not philosophical consistency, the, the, the man backed off from that claim. But that's what I mean when we talk about, is it livable? Can I live this system? Can I flourish as a human by whatever determination I choose to use that word? Or can I be who I want to be? Can I show love consistently with this system? I'm not explaining that very well. Can I live it out? Can I choose this, embrace it, celebrate it? Or do I have to somehow live life 
in spite of my system of belief. And what happens when society at large adopts the same perspective? Yeah. Because that, I think, can be challenging. I think one of the questions I have is that it still seems like even if you have an ultimate standard, like some of these systems that would claim an objective morality, there's still a lot of ambiguity in based on the based on the context or based on the situation. Like, is it wrong to kill? Well, yeah. Well, what about in self-defense? Oh, no. Well, is it is it right or is it wrong? Like, sure. y- you know what I mean? So. I, there still seems like there has to be some contextualizing with some of these ethics, right? Yes, there does. So that question, when I talk about this with the, with the class that I sometimes teach, I talk about the difference between a moral standard being universal and also it being absolute. Okay. A, a universal standard would be lying is wrong always. So it doesn't depend on the culture. It, it, that's something that for all cultures and all times, it is wrong. But it's not absolute in the sense that you should never choose that course at all. Sometimes there are going to be situations where it's the right thing to do. If you are lying to protect the good of another, and the classic scenario here is World War II, you're hiding Jews in your home and the Nazis knock on the door. Right, right. Are you hiding Jews? You probably heard some scenario like that. To me, the correct answer is that you lie. Now, I didn't used to be there because I used to be, I think, more simple-minded. But I've come to see that there is a difference between saying something is universally the right thing to do, but also saying that it's not an absolute. Okay. So there are going to be times, and and I understand this is a little bit difficult concept for people to grasp. Something can be objective. Something can be objective, but still not should be obeyed absolutely. The speed limit in our state is universal. Okay, at least if you're on the interstate, it's always the same speed limit. Does that mean it's never the right thing to do to go go beyond that? No, I'd say in an emergency, you should probably get to the hospital as quickly as you can. Right. So there are times where out of love, either for yourself or for some passenger you have or for some other situation, that you would break that law, which applies to all people in the state of Indiana. It's universal, but it's not absolute. So that's not a strike against objective truths? It's a different category of ways of thinking about them. Gotcha. Gotcha. I remember another professor asking the question, trying to understand if there were absolute good and wrong, asking the question if it was always wrong to, I don't remember what it was, beat animals or something. And, you know, when you think when you think hard about that, it's like, well... Unless there's some other thing. I mean, if somebody put, puts a gun to my head and says, beat this dog or else I'm going to kill your family, then you beat the dog. So maybe not. But then when he qualified it with saying, what about if I say, is it wrong to beat the dogs simply for no other reason than for fun? And it's like, okay, yeah. I mean, when you get the action and the the motivation behind right. it, then you can begin to see. So I, th- I think that was helpful for me to see that actions, there can be ambiguity but when you begin to add other variables, like, is it wrong to speed? Well, it depends why. Okay, is it wrong to speed when you have a, your, you know, your wife's giving birth in the back seat? No. <laughs> but, you know, ask some of these questions and just have one of the variables. It, it gets a little, little murky. Sure. And that's another way of, of thinking through that is you can look at a principle that's universally true. But I think, and then you can make some absolute scenarios within that. For example, 
is it always wrong to kill? Well, do not kill applies to all people. doesn't just apply to some, right? There are not some people just by virtue of their birth who can go out and murder and, and it's fine for them. It applies to all, but there are situations where it's going to be an absolute. But you can make it absolute. Is it always wrong to murder your father for no other reason than you simply are amused by watching him die? Oh, to me, that's an absolute, yeah. right? And, and assuming he's done nothing wrong to you. Exactly. And assuming it's, yeah. This is not self-defense. Uh, this is not protecting somebody he's else. He's been good to you. You know, it's just. Right. Is it is it always wrong to murder your father for an impure motive? Yeah, that's it. That's a more extreme animal than beating a dog, but. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of up the ante here. <laughs> I would say, yeah. And so I mean, it, most people would say, yeah, right? I would think. The question is, do you have a metaphysic and a worldview that provides you with a logical basis for making that morality claim? So if people are concerned with internal consistency of a worldview, then that, that's a pretty, that's a, that's a really important question. Yeah. And to be frank, a lot of people aren't. But I, we're doing this podcast for people who are thinking through the issues related to their own journey. It's not about convincing people who don't want to be convinced or to make blanket statements or anything like that. It's simply to help people think through the implications of what worldview, what viewpoint, what philosophy, what stance regarding God and belief in God they choose. Gotcha. I think that's a good place to Yeah, it's it. been long. A <laughs> lot more a lot more that could be said for sure, but uh I just appreciate your time and helping us look at the four great worldviews, especially through the the lens of ethics. Yeah. Glad to. All right. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, click follow or subscribe depending on your platform. Check the notification bell so you're up to date with new episodes and leave us a review. Until next time.